Won't you take your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, and once you find that, hold that place, but mark the book of Exodus, if you will, because we'll be over there before it's all said and done. I don't know how well you handle being in need, but some of us don't handle it too well. Yesterday, I found myself trying to take care of some projects that my wife had left for me to do, and I didn't have, I didn't have all the tools I needed, and so I always liked the opportunity to go buy some more tools, and so I went to the hardware store, and as I was there, I was looking for, well, see, that's the problem. I didn't know what I was looking for exactly, and uh, I knew what I was supposed to accomplish. I had no idea how to pull it off, and so I had this dilemma as I stood at the hardware store being all man, not really wanting to ask anybody for help. Uh, I started to contact one of the men in our church who knows everything about every tool ever created and decided that would probably come back to haunt me. So I finally broke down and I asked the guy who worked there to help me find what I needed. He said, sure, what do you need? I said, that's exactly my point. I don't know. He said, well, what are you trying to do? I said, well, that's another part of my, I'm not really sure. And, um, it's tough to be a man and not have the ability to ask for help. I want us to hang on to that because it's also tough sometimes for us as church people, as Christian people, to ask for help. Last week, our church, in entertaining the question that we did for a month about determining where God was and the proposed renovation projects, our church decided that God apparently was in it. We believe that he says, do this, and our vote last week shows that to be the case. And that leaves us at the point, I think, of being smart enough to ask for help. Sometimes we come to passages of Scripture, and they're famous enough for us that we immediately decide what it means, and we kind of skim over the surface of some verses without pausing long enough to pay attention to what it says. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19, we find one of those verses, I think. Now, it's really important today before I get there to read that. I know you're turning to that. So let me make sure you hear me say this. If you decide to only listen to about five minutes of this sermon and that five minutes is now, you're going to miss most of what I have to say, all right? Because what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to introduce some challenges to the typical interpretations that we have of this verse. And if you're going to go out of here and call me a heretic, at least listen to the whole sermon before you do that, okay? This passage is significant. Ephesians, excuse me, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19, it's one of those that we love to quote. And it says this, Paul says to the Philippian Christians as he finishes this letter, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's famous. It appears to be this blanket promise that says, For those who know Jesus Christ, every need that they ever have will always be fulfilled. But lurking just beneath the surface of that is an ominous reality that we don't like to deal with when we get our pet verses. And the ominous reality here is that that doesn't seem to always play out. I, I was having a discussion with one of our church members. 
not too long ago in the overall scheme of time. And uh, we were talking about this verse, and they, he came and he began to kind of question me as to how I thought it was supposed to go. And uh, i got to be honest with you, I have so much respect for this person, his ability to process, that I was reluctant to say much. Because it had been a while since I studied the passage. And so we kind of talked around it, and I promised him that I would get to it, and sure enough, I did get to it. And so now we're going to have a message on this, but it happens to fit exactly with where we are as a church right now. I never believed, never dreamed that I would be pastor of a church that had the opportunity to owe the kind of money that we could owe before this is all said and done. That's not a bad thing. It's just a point of reality for me. And so in looking at that, I I process, and as I was working through all of the things that came together for us as a church, and especially for me as pastor, should we go into this? Is God in this or not? And what are we going to do? And how do we pay for it? And all of those things, I, I had to step back and go, okay, God, I need some kind of assurance that you're not going to abandon us in this process. This is a good verse if that's what you're afraid of. Because on the surface, it looks like God is always going to take care of every need you ever might have. So back to my conversation with this guy. One of the things that he pointed out, and I think he's spot on with this. He hits that part of our folk religion that likes to take things at face value and never dig down beneath them and never live the questions. Part of his comment was, if God supplies every need, as this seems to say... Why are there Christians who are hungry? Why are there Christians who live in areas where they go without water? Why are there Christians in Syria and Iraq who don't have what they need in the way of safety? Church history is littered with the lives and the stories of martyrs who seem to have missed out on the supply that God gives on some of these things? It's a great question. The problem that that presents for us is that we don't like great questions like that. It's just a lot more comfortable to have our nice little pet verses that we pull out and we rub on them when we feel a little bit insecure. But if Scripture is worth studying, and it is, it's worth studying well. So we come to this. Let me just give you a little more of the reason I think it's a timely message just in my life. This sounds great, and it makes for great cross-stitch framed hanging on your wall in your house. Sometimes you get into life situations, and it doesn't necessarily seem like it seems to be there. Two weeks ago on Friday, I received a phone call regarding one of my oldest friends in life. Bill was... My uh, high school soccer buddy, we got into lots of trouble together through high school. Did a lot of things as I was working through the last couple of weeks. Uh, just looking back in my life, every major memory that I had from high school through the first five years or so of my marriage, every major memory there, he was part of it. He was just like family for me. Fourteen years ago, Bill married into Teresa's side of the family. And he became my brother-in-law. We had been roommates before we got married, shared an apartment together. High school buddies. God called us both to preach. Within a week of each other, we went to seminary together. He was a pastor and I was a pastor. And our lives were just intersected on multiple levels. 
Two weeks ago on Friday, I got the call that said Bill had driven to his place of employment and taken his own life. After years of mental illness and a depression that was so deep that it was tangible for him, Bill seemed to not have what God promised when Jesus says, peace I leave with you. So we come to these passages. And my God will supply supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And if we're honest enough to get below the surface of that, we have to acknowledge that there are seemingly situations where that just doesn't at least appear to us to be the case. Now, I want you to, this is why I don't want you to call me a heretic. You know me by well, by now well enough to know that I'm not going to challenge the truth of Scripture. I'm challenging how we handle Scripture. And so let's handle this one today. As a church, standing on the verge now of a project that will reach into every part of our lives as church members. We need God's help. We need to know where God is in this and what he would do with us through it all. And so we need to not just be conservative about how we view Scripture. We need to be conservative enough that we handle Scripture well, rightly dividing the word of truth. So let's dig in a little bit in this particular passage. As is always the case when we come to Scripture, one of the things we have to do on the front side, if we're going to understand what it says and how it applies, we must understand the context in which it's given. Every page of Scripture was written by an individual to a particular group of people during a particular period of time for a particular reason. In other words, Scripture didn't just show up on some beach somewhere with God having thrown it out there for us. He used people in in the middle of real situations as the Holy Spirit guided them. They recorded what God has to say to us as our guide for living the Christian life. And in the process of that, one of the things we must do is be responsible in coming back to what did that particular writer have in mind when he wrote to those particular people. So that's where we start with this verse. If we're going to try to get down into it, and I should just tell you, I've been rolling around in this verse of Scripture all week long. The questions that it leaves for me have been such that it's pushed me into some pretty in-depth rolling around in it. And I don't mind telling you, I'm not going to give you all of that stuff this week. None of you would be just going, oh, please finish. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try to get us... At least to the heart and soul of all of it. You want to have further discussions? We certainly can do that. This is the conclusion of Paul's letter to the Philippian Christians. As he comes to this conclusion, one of the things that Paul does is he thanks them for their involvement in him in his own need. As a matter of fact, a couple of, several weeks ago now, I guess, I had Aaron as part of the welcome time and he brought a passage of scripture to us and uh, we were in Thess- First Thessalonians and he gave us the background on that and from the book of Acts that deals with Paul and these Philippian Christians. And we saw there and we see as the background for this that they have given from themselves to take care of Paul in a time in his life where he couldn't take care of himself. In other words, God used them to meet his needs. 
And so as he closes this letter out, he thanks them for that. Chapter 4, verses 14 through 18, we see a little bit of that. It was kind of you to share my trouble, he says. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no other, or excuse me, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering, sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul is saying to them as he wraps up this letter, among other things that he's already said, he is saying, thank you for being the supply to my needs. Another one of those famous passages of Paul's that we like to quote is in this very passage. I've learned to be content, he says. But he's also chronicled the needs that he had. But he's not just at this close of the letter thanking them for the material supply that they gave. He also points to some of the need that they have. Look back to the first chapter of Philippians. In chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Here's what Paul begins by laying out for them. This is what you need, in other words. At the end of the letter, he's saying, you filled my needs, but he starts off the letter by saying, these are the needs that you have. And it is my, this is verse 9, chapter 1. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. What we find there is Paul saying, there are some things that you need, some spiritual characteristics, some qualities that come from walking with Christ. And I am praying that you will have those things. He starts there. And he finishes in chapter 4, verse 19, by saying, God will take care of your needs. So that leads us to back to verse 19. It's okay, so what does he mean by this? Is he just talking about God filling their spiritual needs? Seems to be the thrust of chapter 1. Now, see, that's easy for us to pray and believe God for that. I mean, after all, who of us would not believe that if God really knew that you needed to be able to love that jerk that lives next door to you, that he could give you the ability to do that? But when we come to talking about believing that God will supply food for an empty cabinet, sometimes that's a little harder for us to latch on to, especially when we know that some people seem to starve. So it's verse 19. Scholars have looked at verse 19 and there's inherent problems in this verse for them. I think that those problems grow out of their implications, the theological implications that we have. Because if we're honest enough to ask the question, does God supply for every need of all people in all situations? If we're honest enough to ask that, then the inevitable answer is there seem to be times and places and people where he did not supply for them. Now, that's a theological problem, depending on how you take verse 19. So, scholars have found creative ways, I think, to get around that. And so, they've now, there's some questions 
Well, maybe Paul meant this to be more of a wish, a, a prayer. Actually, their terminology is it's a wish prayer. And so they change the language here a little bit. And there's good, I mean, the reason that it's a debate is because there's good evidence on either side. But, but one part of it says, well, you know, maybe he's really a saying instead of God will do this. That's a statement of fact. He's really praying it as, well, may God do this for you. And as appealing as that may sound, it doesn't deal with the problem. And ultimately, that's not the way it's written. I believe that we need to take it at face value. God says, through Paul, that he will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. But you see, Paul sure seems to put God on the hook there. Be really careful in your own interpretations of Scripture about obligating God to stuff. It's one thing for God to obligate himself. But if we decide that we're going to obligate him, then we might just see that he doesn't necessarily play by our rules. So here's what I think he's saying. Let me just boil it down. Here's what I believe is the principle that is being said here. Taking it as at face value. It is a future verb. It is a promise to us. That God will do this. But the context of Paul, the context of this particular situation, the context of the book of Philippians, and the context of the entire Bible all argue for a specific application here. I believe that Paul is not saying that God is obligated to take care of every need anybody could ever have. Paul is talking in the context of a person, and in this case, a group of people who are following Christ in his design for their lives. And therefore, I believe what he's saying to us is that God, as we follow God's specific will in our lives, you can be sure that he will move heaven and earth to get everything you need to be faithful to him into your life. Now, I'm going to break that down a little bit because that's a huge statement for some Christians. I start off by saying, in following God's specific will for your life, do you realize that God really does have input for you, desires for you about the life choices that you make? He does. God has something to say about the way you live your life and the direction that your life is going. Now, it's, it's amazing to me throughout my history of working with Christian people, some of the greatest Christian leaders I've known personally have come to me in one way or another and say, Preacher, you don't really believe that God is going to communicate with us something as personal as how we're supposed to live our lives. And my answer is, I absolutely believe that. As a matter of fact, if you don't believe that, you can't be saved because somewhere God specifically says to you, you need Jesus in your life. When you hear that, however he says it to you, you respond to a personal invitation from God. So man, let me just stop here for a second. Let's just throw it out there. We're dealing with a church-wide thing. The sermon is designed for a church-wide kind of a application, but let's pull it down to the normal level, the the boots on the ground level. What is it that God wants and desires of you in your life? 
You think God cares about who you date? If you're married, I promise you he cares about who you date. And even if you're not married, I think he does. I don't think God necessarily would say to you, there's only one person in the whole world and you better find them and I ain't saying nothing about it. I don't think he does that. But I do believe that God cares about the deeds. Do you think he cares about where you work? Think God has input for you. I, I, this is a struggle for a lot of Christian people. It's kind of basic, but it's still a struggle. Struggle enough that two weeks from tonight I'm going to start... A whole series of different things tied to the Christian life and living that. And I'm going to do some studies on Sunday nights tied to that. And the first one we're going to do is how do you hear from God? How do you hear what God has to say? We ask you to work at some place in church. You know, we need workers in sixth grade Sunday school. Would you be willing to do that? And our typical answer is, well, I don't know. I'll pray about it. Well, how do you know? Is God going to slap you in the head with some sixth grade kid? He might. How do you hear from God? It implies for us that God really does have something to say about how we live and what specifically we do with our lives. I believe what this passage is saying, given the way Paul is surrounding it with everything else, that when we follow God's specific will for our lives, he obligates himself to give you what you need to be successful. Not, I don't want to say successful, to be faithful in that. Let me hang some experiences on that to help you see what I mean. Very personal stuff for me now. Um, in 1900 and none of your business, God broke through my reality and specifically called me to quit my job in the West Texas oil fields and to go to, go to school in the panhandle. Now, at the time, Teresa and I were married, and we had a three-month-old little boy who had an immune system deficiency. That means he was sick all the time. Um, and yet, the call was so clear for me and for Teresa that within a two-week span of time, I quit my job, and we loaded everything we had, and we moved from Odessa to Plainview, Texas. A specific call from God. Do this at this place. So we did that. But here's some needs, all right? Now here's the thing, here's a funny thing about needs. And I, I guess I should have said earlier, we play semantic games sometimes with these kind of problems in Scripture. And, you know, we immediately go to, well, maybe, you know, God sees our needs and we see them as needs, but they're really desires. Whatever. Okay? We have needs. And some of the needs that I had in this particular calling, I didn't even know that they were needs for me until I responded obediently to what God called me to do. Okay? The Christian life is like that. You get the light for the step that you're about to take. So we moved off. Here's the need that I knew I had. I gotta have money. Because here's what I did. I cut off the income side when I quit my job. I was making more money as a 21-year-old guy at a, in an oil field business. I was making more money than I knew what to do with responsibly and that I deserved. And so, in two weeks' time, I went from lots of money income to zero money income. 
at the same time, just to show you how God works sometimes, at the same time, I incurred an outflow that was bigger than I could have even imagined. You know, going to a public university is expensive, but going to a private university that has the name Baptist on it is unbelievably expensive. In one fell swoop, my need for cash went through the roof. And so, you know what I did about that, right? I worried, just like every Christian does. And somewhere, somebody had said to me, you know what, there's a great verse of Scripture. In Philippians, it says, and my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And I went, that's what I need. I need him to supply. So I started praying for that. And God answered my prayer with a job that paid $35 a week. Even in 1900 none of your business, $35 a week is not much money. God took care of the money part of it in a number of different ways. You know what I found out, by the way, you who you are going to college, I found out that if you make good enough grades, they'll pay you to go to college. If God called you there, and that's his plan for you. There were some other needs that bubbled to the surface pretty quickly. First of all, there were some emotional needs that I had. And I didn't know that. Because I come from a family that is, is, is typically, historically, we say, emotions, who needs them? Um, the problem with that is you're denying the ba- basic part of how God puts you together. And so we get there. Teresa and I both, remember, had grown up in that town. Our families were all there. Uh, she was a stay-at-home mom. I was working. She was doing stuff with her sisters and her friends and stuff like that all day long. And so when we moved off to a town where we didn't know anybody all of a sudden it became clear to us that there were some needs that we had. For one, we had emotional needs that we didn't know were there until we found ourselves there the first night, actually every night the first week, and the discussion that we had was along these lines. You know, we're so alone here that if somebody broke in our house and killed us, nobody would even know. All of a sudden... That became an issue for me. And my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And I started remembering those passages of Scripture. I started dealing with those passages of Scripture where Jesus said, I'm leaving, but I will not leave you alone. Another part of that whole mix for us was we had relationship issues Needs that we didn't know anything about. Teresa and I were on the verge of divorce when God pulled that on us and sent us off to college to a town where we didn't know anybody. All we had was each other. For two plus years, we had lived our lives as if we belonged together. We just weren't really together. Two lives doing their own thing. And suddenly, when it was just us, God said, uh, get to know your wife. And my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. There's another element of need that I had when I went off to school that I didn't know I had. See, one of the things about college that I hated 
was they expect you to read. I, I moved in May and started school in June. Okay, At Wayland, in those days, that was uh, what they called their microterms. They were three, three weeks long, five days a week, eight hours a day. And the first one that I took was British Lit. I'm going to remind you something. I was coming off of a drug habit in those days. My mind was mush. I could not retain stuff. I I had very little self-discipline to sit down and work through the stuff that it took to get homework done. And here I was going, going to class and some smart aleck English teacher from Germany was trying to get me to read British Lit. And I was thinking, I hate to read. But she was insistent. If I was going to pass, I was going to have to read. So I found myself hours going over these stories and poems and all that garbage of British lit. And somewhere in the process of that, I broke down. God, I hate to read. I can't believe you brought me up here and you're going to make me do this. It wasn't just British lit. Immediately after that one, I had an American history class. Oh my goodness, they make you read too. And then an Old Testament survey class, and they make you read. Yeah, it's the Bible, but you still got to read and get tested on it. And that whole stretch, my prayer was, God, why did you do this to me? And finally, I reached a point where the need was so crystal clear for me. I've got to do this. You called me here to do it. I've got to have it if I'm going to get out. I need you to help me. Give me a love for reading. And I mean, it was like God flipped a trigger in my life. I can't, I can't stop reading. Most days now, even now, that's been many years ago. Most days now, I have four, five, six different books I'm reading at any given time. You know why? Because God answered that prayer. You see how God works with us when we respond to what he's calling us to do. We have needs that we don't even know are there. And by being obedient with what he calls us to today causes needs in our life to surface. And if we're being obedient to his specific call, he obligates himself, this passage and others, he obligates himself to meet that need for us. It's not some blanket thing where anybody and everybody always gets everything they want. That sells well on TV, but it doesn't sell in real life. But when you are responding to God's specific call in your life, like Paul did, and God used these Philippian people to fill his need, when you're responding to God's specific call in your life, like these Philippian people are doing, they're giving their stuff away to Paul, and that leaves them needy. And Paul says, I promise you God will move heaven and earth to fill the need that you have. The structure of this passage helps us out. It underscores that basic truth that God in a glorious kind of way will fill the needs that we have that come with being obedient to his calling in our lives. In other words, you can count on God. So let me take a couple of minutes here 
and give you why I think this holds true, not just here, but all through Scripture. Look in Exodus. Now, we're going to be through in Philippians, so you don't have to hold your place there. I'll probably say that verse a time or two again, but let's look. Over in the book of Exodus, there's a couple of examples for us of how God worked through his people. And we have the guy Moses. You remember Moses? God calls him from the heart of a burning bush. And what is God's word to Moses? Let's do some audience participation here. Take off your shoes because... Okay, but why was that significant? What was it God was saying to Moses? Here's my specific plan for the rest of your life. It was, go back to Egypt and get all of those slave people... And bring them here because I want to talk to them. Now, that's a problem for, for Moses. Moses has some needs immediately out of that. Here's one of them. Moses was a wanted man in Egypt. He had murdered somebody. His face was very recognizable because he grew up with the man himself, Pharaoh. And so Moses, here's what God has to say. I'm sure that Moses' needs jumped right up into the middle of his face because he tried to get out of this deal. And God said, I'll give you everything you need to do what I'm telling you to do. Exhibit A, 10 plagues that caused Pharaoh to say, y'all just get out of here, just take your people and go. Moses, in, in his wildest dreams, could have never believed that that's how God would supply for what he was telling him to do. But what kicked it was Moses was willing to do what God told him to do. Here's another one for you. Let me put some actual scriptures on this one. You know that tabernacle in the wilderness that God told them to build is rather elaborate. Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 23, listen to what was required. This is God talking about building different elements of the tabernacle that they were to have in the wilderness. You shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits shall be its length. A cubit its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. Time out. Remember that these children of Israel had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Where are they going to get gold out in the middle of the wilderness to do this stuff? Well, there's a good answer to that. By the way, I could take you all through this part of Exodus. I'm not going to do it because of time. I could take you all through here, and God gives this elaborate set of stuff that they're supposed to use to make the elements of worship for the tabernacle. The question is, where are they going to get all that stuff? The answer to that is in chapter 25. Speak in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. Amen. They were Baptists. It was offering time. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, etc., etc. My question still is, these are slave people. Where does that come from? Great answer. It's a wonderful question. I'm so glad I asked it. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1, before they ever left Egypt. Don't miss this, okay? This is a fundamental principle of living with God that I'm about to give you. 
Chapter 11, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague, or one plague more, I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. I'm going to stop reading there, and I'm going to jump over to chapter 12, verses 33 through 36. Remember, the question is, where are these children of Israel going to get the gold and silver and stuff that God's going to require from them way out there in the wilderness? Verse 33 of chapter 12 The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. Let me tell you something. Nobody gets a message across like God does. And when he does, it's amazing the supply that he brings to the need. Verse 34, so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry. And for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Here's a great principle for a church going into a renovation plan. One of the fundamental truths of life with God, God's economy, if you will, is based on supply and demand. But in God's economy, the supply always precedes the demand. In other words, what you need is available when you need it. I know that's a little bit off for some of us, but let it sink in for a second. Let me give you the fundamental example of that. We got a couple families in here with new babies or pretty close to new babies. When that baby first is born, what does he need more than anything else? Oxygen. Isn't it it great that God provides a room full of oxygen for that baby? We could talk long, and we will talk long about this, because two weeks from today I'm going to start a series in this service about Abram, who became Abraham, and what it means to walk with God and to trust him. Hebrews says that Abraham is the father of the faithful. There's much to learn from him. A basic truth of God's economy is that he supplies for the demand. And my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The key is that last phrase, in Christ Jesus. The grammar and the syntax of that particular sentence in Philippians has that last phrase, in Christ Jesus, in the emphatic position. It's the primary driving truth of it all. The supply is found in Christ. As we are obedient to what he says to do, God puts himself on the line to give us what we need to be faithful to him. You might go hungry in the process, but he'll give you what you need to be faithful. 
I'm not so sure you'll go hungry, honestly. The question becomes then, what is it God wants us to do? That's been the driving question around here for at least five weeks. And it's going to continue to be that for the next four or five weeks. Because we have to ask the question, is God in this? And if he is in this, as we voted last week that we believe that he is, then that means that there is a supply for, that he's going to give us to give us everything we need to get through it, whatever that is. And I don't think we even know everything that that is yet. But we do know that he has said, I'm good for it, if you trust me. I also will tell you that some of the way he supplies is through his people. My commitment to you, though, is that we will keep this whole project on a spiritual front. I'm not going to get up here and bang the drums for you to give more money. You give what God tells you to give. And we're going to take a month as a church to pray about you and your family and what it is that you need to give. Above and beyond your normal giving is what we're talking about. We'll talk more about that as we go. My point today is don't miss this truth. God, if he's in it, is going to take care of us as long as we're obedient to what he has to say. You might be surprised at what he will do to move heaven and earth in a glorious way according to his riches. He'll supply for us. By the way, that's true in your personal life too. just doesn't apply to churches. It applies in your life as an individual. What's God doing with you where he's moving you to see some needs that only he can supply? This is real. This is above and beyond the cultural Christianity that our world seems to embrace. This is nuts and bolts, boots on the ground, walking with Jesus every day and letting it affect every part of your life. Bow your heads with me and let's pray together. As we go into this time of invitation, I want to say first, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that is the need of the hour for you. Jesus has promised to come and give you life, to take those things in your life that are eating your lunch, to take that separation from God that sin creates in all of us, Jesus steps into that mix and gives us life. Only he could do that. So if that's you today and you don't know Christ, then I would invite you to take the step to let us introduce you to him. It's a discussion. We'll have to have a discussion with that. So I just invite you to start the discussion today. You can come down here. We'll be praying. Aaron is going to be down here. Matter of fact, Aaron, come on up. Stand here. He'll be happy to visit with you and talk with you. I'll be down in just a moment. We'll do that. If you need Jesus Christ in your life, today's the day. Don't walk out of here without him. Many of us know who he is. He's our savior. And yet some of the things that we've done in our lives have just relegated him to some back corner of our world. This is the same Jesus who says, I'll be Lord of all or I'm not Lord at all. What do you do with that? Maybe you have needs here today that are just overwhelming you. You walked in here, not even sure why, but you walked in hoping against hope that somehow there would be some help for you. Jesus will help you. We'll help you figure that out also. Invitation time. Whatever God's doing in your life, you come.